Hello and welcome to the Ed Surge On Air podcast. I'm your co-host, Jeff Young. These days, algorithms have taken on an almost godlike power. They're up in the clouds, the data clouds anyway, watching everything, sometimes passing judgment, and leaving us mere mortals no way to appeal, or even to know sometimes when they've intervened. That's the argument made by Kathy O'Neill in her book, Weapons of Math Destruction. And if algorithms are gods, she's one of the high priests as a data scientist with a PhD in math. These days, she's actually trying to challenge that narrative around big data by pointing out just how fallible the math frameworks around us are, whether in financial systems, social networks, or in education. As she writes, many of these models have encoded human prejudice, misunderstanding, and bias into the software systems that increasingly manage our lives. I talked with O'Neill this week to hear why she loses sleep over algorithms and about her push to build tools to audit Facebook, Twitter, and other systems that have asserted themselves into human affairs. We'll have that conversation right after this. This episode of the Ed Surge On Air podcast is brought to you by the Ed Surge Next newsletter. Get the latest news and views about higher education technology each week. Sign up for the Ed Surge Next newsletter. Just visit edsurge.com and click on subscribe. All right, I'm talking today with Kathy O'Neill, author of the New York Times bestseller, Weapons of Math Destruction, How Big Data Increases Inequality and Threatens Democracy. And it's just coming out in paperback. Thanks for talking with us today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Well, these days, more and more of our social systems rely on algorithms. And education is certainly one of those, as you talk about in your book, both the K-12 and at the college level. But I wanted to start First, I'm curious about how you ended up on the front lines of these trends. Um, You're a mathematician um, yourself by training and were in academia at first um, doing research, but you left higher ed and went into finance um, Mm -hmm. for a couple years at a hedge fund. I I guess I wanted to start by saying what what led you to leave that world of finance and decide that, as you put it in your book, that there's a a dark side of, of big data. When I turned 15, I decided I was going to become a math professor. Um, it was actually, I was at a math camp at the time. So it just was like the, the most glamorous thing I could imagine. I love it. Um, <laughs> and when I was 35, I, there I was. And I was, a bar, I was a Barnard College math professor, you know, in combined math departments with Columbia, living in New York City. And I was like, damn it, I, I made it. And this is awesome. And I love New York City. Um, but I wasn't particularly psyched with the pace of the job, um, nor was I particularly psyched with like, the actual department I was in. And so I started just thinking, well, you know, this was my dream and it was good to have ambitions and goals. Um, but is this actually suitable for me? I, I just jumped out and, it, and worked, uh, started working immediately at DE Shaw, uh-huh. which is a hedge fund. And I, I should mention, I started in June, 2007. So right before the credit crisis started breaking. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, it was, it was a pretty fancy hedge fund. You know, like I worked with Larry Summers there. It, you know, we were pretty much on the front lines of that kind of thing, the quantitative hedge fund stuff. And so we've got a pretty amazing view of the financial crisis from the inside. And in particular, you know, we became aware, I think well before the average person in, in, you know, the, rest of, in the public, of just how important the... Um, the mortgage-backed securities were, and in particular, the uh, AAA-rated mortgage-backed securities, how they had been sort of mislabeled. And the more I learned about that, 
the, the sicker to the stomach I became, you know, I've, I just felt like, wait, this is mathematics and it's been used to deceive. It's like a mathematical deception, a lie. And moreover, it was really, really destructive, right? I mean, investors from all over the world believed that these mortgage-backed securities were really safe and they bought into them. They, they actually invested in them, um, much to their detriment later. So I was, I was honestly pretty ashamed of that. Although, and I should mention that my, my hedge fund had nothing to do with those ratings. That was the credit rating agencies. Mm-hmm. The other side of the, of the, of the finance world was where, where I worked, where, which was like using statistics and math and you know, data to try to anticipate markets. And that, that wasn't deceptive, but it also wasn't actually helping the world either. It was basically taking advantage of um, patterns and you know people can you know thoughtful people can disagree on whether that's a good thing or a bad thing but it, at the moment of the credit crisis I was like this is not what I want to be doing I don't want to be taking advantage so that I can become rich I really want to be figuring out how to help this system get better and I was you know still quite naive because I should say I, I didn't know anything um, about finance when I entered but by this time I was I knew something but I was still quite naive in thinking Essentially that like I could use mathematics to fix bad mathematics. If you understand, I wanted to sort of double down on math. I wanted to go and fix risk the way we understood risk. So I joined a firm called risk metrics, which did sort of risk analysis for almost all the big banks and hedge funds. And my idea was we're going to reimagine the risk of the, these instruments that had been go- that had gone crazy during the crisis. So credit default swaps in particular. So I was actually working on the credit default swap risk model. Hmm. Um, and soon after that, I realized like that no one cared. <laughs> like I came up with something that would expose more risk. And people were like, we don't want to know about more risk. We already have too much risk on our books. Um, and that's when I was like, wait, this isn't a math problem. This is a, this is much a, like a political problem. The fact that, the, you know, the banks were bailed out and they didn't really have to deal with the, the damage they'd done. Like nobody went to jail. I really became disillusioned because, and I also understood that math, math doesn't solve problems. Um, it, it's, you know, of course math does solve some problems. I don't want to, I don't want to make it seem like there's no good math in the world. There's plenty of good math, but mathematics alone can solve big, big problems that are actually political in nature. It requires the political will as well. Um, so I actually left finance kind of like wanting to, get away from it as far, far as possible because I didn't think I could help. You note that a lot of quote-unquote poisonous assumptions are camouflaged by math um, going into some of these algorithms and whether those are in, in advertising or prisons or education. Yeah. Um, but why do you think that happens so often? Because even you, at some point, you note that sometimes the systems are built with good intentions. Right. I mean, I think the original risk model I was using, for example, when we were looking for risk in, in my, in the firm risk metrics, like the intention was to sort of, um, to encapsulate risk with one number. But as soon as you're doing anything with one number, you're kind of by necessity dumbing down a lot. Um, and they, there were just a bunch of assumptions that were better than nothing at the time, but ended up being something that was easily gamed so that people could sort of you know, hide risk. Like as soon as you make a metric that's important in people's mm-hmm. lives, they learn to game it and then they pervert it um, beyond all original meaning. And that's, sure. that's what you see more and more, you know, very often in the world of 
in the world of algorithms. And algorithms at the end of the day are typically scoring systems and they score things, score people in the realm of data scientists. They score uh, portfolios or um, trades in the realm of finance. Um, and then as soon as you have a scoring system, then you can game the scoring system. And if you game it enough, it'll stop making sense. And that's, that's just, you know, essentially what's happened. I needed a job and I was still a nerd. So I was like, well, maybe I'll become a data scientist and then I'm not in finance anymore. So I'm not, you know, screwing up the world. Um, but as soon as I joined um, as a data scientist, as soon as I got a job sort of predicting people's clicks and, and such, I realized that these, these models could be wrong too. They could have the wrong embedded assumptions and if they did, then the failures would not be noticed. Now, I was curious about um, the the higher education example you talk about, which is the U.S. News and World Report college rankings, yeah. which a lot of people in the higher ed world have complained about for a while, but they still loom large. I guess what what are the um, you know what are your issues with with those, and and what are your recommendations for? improving or replacing them? So the U.S. News and World Report college ranking algorithm is like really old and really horrible. And it's horrible because <laughs> it's super gameable and colleges have like perverted their themselves. College, you know, administrators have perverted the concept of college itself, I would argue, um, in order to boost their ranking in, in that list. And for that matter, I blame parents too, because parents are the ones that actually care so much about the ranking of their children's school. Um, and it's, it's just been given this absolutely outsized power um, by society. And the worst part of it, I would argue, is that it is not only does it care about a lot of silly things, but it actually doesn't care about one of the most important things, namely price. And the result has been that administrators in their attempts to boost their ranking have ignored tuition costs. And therefore they've done really expensive things that has raised tuition for people without actually improving education. Now, what I'd like to see done about it is that people stop looking at lists. <laughs> I know that's a complete, it's a pipe dream, but I, I want people to, I want there to be a tool and there is something like this, but I don't know. Um, if it's being developed anymore, Obama's Obama's White House actually built a college um, a college tool for for parents and, and high school seniors. That's right, the college scorecard. I think they call scorecard, it scorecard. Yeah, and I liked it because it allowed parents to decide what they considered important. Like, if you think price is important, which most people do, and I I'm one of them. My my oldest son is a senior in high school this year. Oh sure. Um, you know that. I should be able to say this is important to me. I should be able to weight that as a like 0. 0.5. You Before know? you get the ranking, a ranking Before, list. Yeah. Basically I want to build my own ranking list. Mm -hmm. Now, I mean, the wall street journal built one last year. I'm glad to see competition for the U S news mo model. Um, but you know, the, the wall street journal, unsurprisingly focused very heavily on the income of graduates. Right. As well as the debt load of graduates. I think debt load is, is a fine thing to ask about, but if, let's face it. Um, it skews against people um, who are poor, right? Or even middle class. Um, the people that have the least debt load are Harvard graduates. Um, and I'm just saying like, you know, it, it, it does exactly what you think it does. And one of the things it does, if especially because it, it's focusing on income after graduation, is it, um, it, it really ups the scores for engineering schools. 
many of whose, um, like almost all of whose graduates get a, get a job um, as, a, as an engineer in Silicon Valley. Like not every school can be an engineering school. It almost tells you sort of just basic facts about life in our society, about what kind of professions give you different rewards in some weird way. I mean, that's, yes, actually, you could get deep on this stuff. And just think about like, why are engineers so overpaid relative to like, you know, English majors when we need English majors, we need sociologists, you know? Um, yeah. It, it does really make you think about the sort of the nature of, of reward and value and what we value as a society itself. Anyway, the point is that everybody has a different lens for this and they should be able to um, build their own list. So that's, that's the kind of thing I would like to see as a tool probably, you know, a few more generations past the scorecard that Obama's created, but like really just saying, well, what do you care about? What does your kid care about? Like my middle son, for example, wants to be at a small school in Maine because he just doesn't like people. Um, (laughs) But he's a nerd. Like there's, I'm sure there's a school out there for him. And there's so many schools. I don't know what it's called. And there should be a a system and it should be data heavy um, to help me find that school. And by the way, I think one of the biggest obstacles to building this really is the opacity of the college market. Like we don't know what the prices are for college for colleges. We only know what sticker prices are and everybody knows that very few people pay that. So it's a really, it's a tough, it's, it's a complicated and tough uh, nut to crack. Uh, well, it seems like a lot of the ones you wrote about are in fact, which, you know, it's, it's, it seems like each one is more complicated than the next in a way. Um, I guess we're, and maybe this is the hardest one, which is we're at a political and cultural moment when people are thinking a lot about their filter bubbles and how they're getting information and sometimes misinformation online. Um, now, as somebody who obviously is really deep in understanding these algorithms and how they work, are you optimistic at all that we can find a way to create social networks and online platforms that can kind of have a more healthy information diet? Am I optimistic? No, I wouldn't call myself optimistic. I would say that there are healthy steps that are being taken by the social media giants. Um, You know, back when Zuckerberg was claiming that fake news wasn't a big problem, (laughs) um, that was an excruciating moment. You know, I think things have gotten slightly better from that, but it's certainly not nowhere near where it needs to be. You know, the way I look at it is that Facebook optimizes on profit. Facebook optimizes on our engage, the so-called engagement, which basically means how much time we spend on Facebook. Like looking at being on the platform, clicking something, that kind of thing. Clicking something. It just wants us to stay there forever because the longer we stay there, the more clicks we do, we click on their ads and that's how they make money. So they're optimizing to their bottom line, which is profit. They're making tons and tons of money and they've essentially decimated the, like the journalism. Um, as an industry. And yet they haven't, you know, they refuse to actually hire journalists to edit their content um, or even to fact check. They're, they're actually like, they're sending the fact checking out to, you know, services outside of Facebook, mostly on a free basis. I just don't even understand how they're getting away with it. Hmm. Um, and then in the meantime, they're making just billions of dollars um, every presidential cycle, sending us propaganda. I know it's like, I'm, I'm in a bad mood right now or something because this is, I'm very unedited, but the truth is like the Facebook is a propaganda machine. Um, never before have candidates been able to tailor their message so uh, acutely to the different um, contingencies in their, uh, in their 
their voting, the voting strata. Um, and it, it is frankly beyond the pale in the sense that um, we have no idea what the messages are being sent to various groups. At the end, the waning hours of the Trump campaign, one of the campaign managers bragged that they'd sent some Facebook ads as a voter suppression tactic to African-Americans, which is to say they were sending ads to convince African-Americans that not to vote at all. This is the opposite idea of the get out the vote campaign, which we've, we've always had. And get out the vote is partisan in the sense that Democrats try to get the Democratic vote out and Republicans try to get the Republican vote out. Now we will ha- never again have a, make the mistake of accidentally trying to get a Republican vote out if we're a Democratic campaign, because we know everybody's side, because that's what, that's what data warehousing and profiling does. So we know everybody's affiliation. Um, but moreover, we're actually going to be sending sort of suppression, voter suppression ads to the other side. And I would add that in contrast to the laws about TV commercials where they have to sort of say, oh, this was sponsored by so-and-so, you know, candidate for governor. Right, the campaign finance laws that... that yeah, we don't have that online. So there's, we, we could even be sending information and it doesn't have to be real information, by the way. It's mostly plays on emotions um, to people without any indication that it's a political campaign ad at all. And it can be done with dark money. And it, it, it's just, and it is being, all this stuff is being done. It's really disgraceful. So again, it goes back to your conclusion in your finance world where you were you know, trying to fix the problem with more math. Is this fixable with more math or is this a social thing or both? This is absolutely a social thing. And now I, I would argue that there, we do need more math. And <laughs> I, I'll, I'll talk about that. As a mathematician, you can say that, but yes. Yeah. Um, because what I want to do, the more math is in, in the following direction. I want to build auditing algorithms. I want to audit these algorithms and that an audit for an algorithm is itself an algorithm. And so like we do, we need to develop that. That's it's part math. It's part statistics. It's part computer science. So we do need new technology. I would, I would refer this as like a tool to understand what these black box algorithms are doing, what they're doing to us, what they're doing to democracy. You know, we need these new tools. Um, but the most important thing is we need to get Facebook to show us what the ads are. What are you showing people? Um, if you're really sending um, propaganda ads on behalf of a Trump campaign to get people not to vote, what exactly does that ad look like? I think, I think we deserve to know. I wonder, have you looked much at all at the kind of educational, personalized learning world of algorithms? I mean, I've been, I've been, I've been having a growing nightmare. <laughs> like, I worry a lot, by the way. Um, so parts of this book, I couldn't sleep for, for weeks, especially the stuff around the criminal justice system. Based on what you were refining in your research? Yeah, yeah. Because I was just, I have this, like, my imagination is dark. You know, I, I think about all the bad things that could be done with these algorithms because they're so powerful. And they're in these very haphazard, sloppy hands people who are just assuming that because they work at a startup, they must be doing good for the world. You know, it's just crazy. Um, and this, this ed tech stuff. And I, I should say that I'm not like, I, I don't want to be living in the stone ages. I want us to use good tools that work for kids. So I'm, I'm not saying if the tablet, if the lessons on tablets really work well, let's, let's use them. But what I worry about is this idea that we are um, surveilling our children from the get go 
and that will have sort of like a very, very long-term record on, on their abilities and, you know, their, their grit. This is a new thing that, that uh, they're being, they're being measured on. It's something yeah. called persistence, their persistence scores. Um, you know, I think about my own son, who's a senior in high school now. He's a, he's a really smart guy, but he couldn't read until third grade. Um, and I wonder what his scores would look like if, you know, I don't know how they are going to use this information, but he wasn't looking good at the end of second grade um, to the, to the world of education. I, I just feel like our, chil- our children, we should protect, you know, and we should think about what could go wrong here. A lot of these higher ed, um, sorry, a lot of these ed tech algorithms don't seem to think about things like learning disabilities um, or cultural differences. Um, they seem to be like a one size fits all type thing, in spite of the fact that they're saying it is like learning dynamic stuff. And personalized, right? And personalized. I think they have a very narrow definition of personalized. And then they have a very narrow definition of like what it means to be successful. And I just feel like the last remaining uh, realm for like being able to mess up and not being sort of kicked for it is childhood. And like, we're taking that away where we could be again. Like, I don't want to say let's not use this if it's great, but let me put it this way. I want to see evidence that it works before we roll it out on a large scale. And that's, that's the thing I haven't seen at all. I haven't seen any place where these ed tech companies are describing what their evidence is, like what, what they mean that it works, you know, how are they keeping track of things not going wrong? It's just as if they're being trusted implicitly by the school systems in which they work, that they must be doing good because they're technology. And it's exactly this, that same kind of lack of skepticism I saw with big data and with the finance crash. Now you propose, um, a Hippocratic oath of sorts for data scientists. Um, yeah. What, yeah. Getting back to solutions, I guess, or getting to a, a, what can be done. You've got your, so what is, what is it, what would it mean to apply a Hippocratic oath for data science? I was given an outrageous amount of power um, because I was a math PhD um, it, when I was working as a data scientist and like, they were like, well, you have a PhD, so you know what you're doing. But the, the questions I was supposed to be answering were ethical questions. They weren't math questions. Do you see what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like building, you know, building an algorithm that, um, you know, some of the things I was doing were pretty low stakes. But at some point I was working, you know, for the city of New York and working in this, you know, trying to understand which homeless families will stay in the system for a long time. And I was trying to decide, like, oh, should I use race as an attribute? And then I realized, like, well... I guess it all depends on what the consequence of this algorithm will be. If it, if a um, family is deemed like high risk of staying long, are they going to be given more support or are they going to give given less support? Are they, you know, it, so what, if you think through it, you realize that you are, you're sort of like the de facto ethicist at the center of this algorithm. Um, And it's like, I'm not trained to be an ethicist. I don't even know how to think about this correctly. Um, and I realized that I was going through these ethical quandaries, but that most data scientists around me had not even done that. Um, because why? Because they were computer science majors or they were math majors or they were, you know, engineering majors. Like they were never talked, they were never 
they never discussed concepts of ethics. Um, and so that's one thing I think we absolutely need for the, anybody who might be working in a Facebook or a Google or, or a city hall um, and where their, their algorithms will decide on people's fates. Um, they have to think about ethics, but I, but having said that, I don't want them to be the final word on ethics. I mean, I don't I still think we're, our specialty is not ethics. We have to know enough to know when we're making ethical decisions. But my, I, my ideal data scientist would actually consider themselves to be a translator. So a translator of ethical decisions made at a higher level among a lot of people who don't necessarily have technical skills, but do have ethical skills. Um, and then the data scientist's job would be to translate those decisions into code, because that's what we're, we're good at. Now, on the question of whether algorithms should be regulated, I am calling for that. Um, I'm calling for algorithms of a certain level of importance, so that are, that are scaled and that decide important things for people, like you know, whether they get a credit card or whether they get how much they pay for insurance or whether they get a job or how long they go to prison, other kinds of algorithms I talk about in the book. Um, or how they're assessed at their job, like important things for a lot of people, those algorithms should be held to high, high standards, very high standards. And going back to what I was saying about EdTech, such algorithms, and EdTech would be, in, would be included, by the way, um, that such algorithms should be forced to define what they mean by success and to um, show data, a continuous monitor of data, like for whom is this failing? Uh, for whom is this succeeding? Like break it down by gender, break it down by race, make sure that we're not like kicking everybody out of a job who has a mental health status because that's illegal under the Americans with Disability Act. Mm -hmm. Like make sure that at the very least, make sure these algorithms are legal. And then if we go a step further, make sure these algorithms are ethical. Um, so I feel like we have no such rules most of these algorithms, even when they are used in highly regulated spaces like hiring, they are not being checked for legality. Hmm. Yeah, I guess we just don't see math as breaking the law somehow. <laughs> it's a nice way of saying it. <laughs> I mean, I don't really think it's math breaking the law, right? It's, to be fair, like, math doesn't do anything like that. But, but you, but what happens is you put in this, you put in data that's biased, you put in um, a biased um, definition of success, and you decide what, what the penalty for failures are. And when you put that all together, you get, you end up with biased outputs um, from this algorithm, even though the algorithm itself, the underlying mathematical algorithm is not biased. But once, once you filled it up with, with terrible information, then it, then it does exactly what it's expected to do. Well, uh, these are these are big, big challenges, um, and I really appreciate your taking the time to, to, to walk through this today with us. Uh, thanks for the time. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. This has been the Ed Surge On Air podcast. I just realized that this is the second math professor we've had on in a month, um, so I guess data scientists really are taking over. If you didn't catch that, uh, go to our archive to check out Robert Talbert talking about how he flipped his math classroom. Please follow us on SoundCloud, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts, and send suggestions or comments to feedback at edsurge.com. This episode was edited and produced by me, Jeff Young. Join us next week for another conversation about the future of education. Thanks for listening.